people need ordering principles. Twelve rules. Uh, welcome to a mini episode of Twelve Rooms for What. I'm Alex. Welcome to. <laughs> Welcome to this mini episode of 12 Rules for What. My name is Alex. I'm joined by Sam. Uh, we're going to be talking about what happened in Portland on the 29th of June, um, where there was a major anti-fascist mobilisation in which uh, pseudo-journalist Andy No of the right-wing website Quillette was milkshaked and punched. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about disinformation and how we can combat so over the uh, last few weeks, there's been a kind of an uptick, I think, in people, particularly in American media, talking about anti-fascism. Why is that? On the 29th of June in Portland, um, there was a, a, an anti-fascist counter-mobilisation to a Proud Boy demonstration by a number of groups, including uh, Royal City Antifa, which are like the uh, militant anti-fascists of Portland, I guess, and a more popular, broad-based group called um, uh, Popular Mobilisation, um, who... Uh, seem to play a role that in some time Laffer could play in that they're trying to get a lot of people out into a much safer mobilisation in order to get numbers out onto the streets. Laffer is London Anti-Fascist Assembly. It's a group that's been set up this year in order to kind of broaden the base of anti-fascist activism in London. And you should look out and go to their stuff because they're great. Um, it's important to think, say, thing to say right from the start before we get into the whole controversy, the outrage machine uh, that is Twitter and mainstream commentary and stuff, that the demonstration, the anti-fascist mobilisation itself was incredibly successful. Um, the Proud Boys were now outnumbered about 10 to 1. They had to shelter behind police lines who, Portland police, as they have often done, protected the far right and uh, collaborate with them to a certain extent. Um, and it's an example of like a number of different tendencies on the left coming out and playing a, a, a role within the, within a broader rank, broader day, um, which is something that we need to learn here in the UK. So Andy No is um, uh, an editor for uh, kind of I guess kind of Dave Rubin s classical liberal liberal slash secretly really right wing website called Quillette, which kind of became like the intellectual voice for a time of the um, the what's it the IDW. The yeah, the intellectual, intellectual dark, dark web. web, which is a collection of like pseudo intellectuals and social media personalities, and Ben Shapiro for some reason, um, who is neither of those, two. who is neither an intellectual nor neither has a personality or is intellectual. Um, uh, who they and the IWW are uh, almost like boringly anti PC. They they hark back to like you know, the kind of shock comedy of the early 2000s, late 90s, in a, in a, in a way. But, like, without the comedy, most of the time. Well, without the comedy, they're not funny and they're not <laughs> not particularly clever. But there, there are some quite kind of heavy hitters in there. Like, Joe Rogan's a piece of fluff, but he has, like, the most popular podcast in the world. It gets, like, regularly gets millions of views. His recent interview with Ben Shapiro got, like, you know, three million views for a three-hour interview. Yeah, it's kind of wild, the... Uh just the duration of these things, like just how much people are consumed by these things is way more even than they would be by traditional media. I think there was a, uh, a, a sense uh, about kind of maybe 10 years ago when YouTube was first becoming really big that what was going to happen was that people were just going to fragment and fragment and fragment and there was going to be no long-form content. It was just going to be shorter and shorter things. That's now proven to be, I think, totally not the case in the sense that, you know, there are now these three-hour, five-hour streams. Yeah, Sargon doing five-hour streams yeah. regularly. I mean, it's just... People just like the voice in their, on, in their room, 
I yeah. think people are lonely and they want like a constant sound of someone else talking. Yeah. Um, IDW, the people like uh, Eric Weinstein, who is the um, head of Teal Capital, Peter Teal, is a neo-reactionary. So yeah, Quilla is the was was the uh, the kind of intellectual publication for this kind of group. They gave a lot of the backing to it. And Andy Noe is an editor on the site. He was famous. He's got famous over the last couple of years uh, reporting on uh, fascist and, and anti-fascist confrontations in Portland, Oregon, where he's from. Um, and throughout throughout his time doing this, he has quite explicitly sided himself with uh, the Proud Boys, um, Patriot Prayer, these far-right groups, and set himself up as the enemy of Antifa. Let's talk a bit about who the Patriots, uh, sorry, who the Proud Boys are. So the Proud Boys are uh, a group that's set up by the founder of, one of the founders of Vice called Gavin McInnes, who was always pretty right-wing and reactionary. Um, but this is back in a time before Vice got work. He did a lot of the do's and don'ts columns in the early Vice on the website and in, in the magazines, which are... Uh, just horrible, <laughs> horrible content, basically. Um, uh, he had a severance package. He got out before the rest of the executives became billionaires. He's always been bitter about it. He's now this, like, right-wing, crank, fascist, pseudo-fascist guy. He sets up this group called the Proud Boys, which claimed to be a fraternal order of, yeah. um, you know, uh, West fans of the West. Yeah, the Pledge of Allegiance is uh, something like... Um, I'm a Western chauvinist and I will not apologise for creating the modern world. Right. Which is... Uh, Dubious history, uh, to say the absolute history. least. Um, the, 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 the Proud Boys are super weird because they... they, they can't, they're kind of this epitome of the... Um, are we serious? Are we not? Everything's ironic. They're, a lot of their kind of, like, initiation to the various levels of the organisation are, like, just clearly meant to be ridiculous. Like recite as many serial brands as you can think of. It's one of the first ones. Mm-hmm. And then there's swearing off masturbating. Uh, but as it goes on, it gets more sinister. So the fourth, to, to get the fourth rank of whatever the Proud Boys cluster ranks, you have to get arrested for the cause, which means fighting anti-fascists or fighting the left, or commit a serious act of violence for the cause. Yeah. Um, which is where it starts to take a really, like, a really, a really dark turn. I think it's it's it's... I think you're right that it takes... I mean, it was um, always dark, but like... Sure, which is kind of like what's interesting about um, other online communities. Um, I don't want to talk too much about NoFap, uh, but NoFap is basically a kind of anti-masturbation uh, position, which is trying to fight against what it sees as, for example, uh, the dangers of online pornography. And that seems kind of innocuous. And there is some you know, research that pornography is probably like bad for you in the long term if you watch too much of it. But also at the same time, it is a kind of a sexual cleanliness, a refusal of what they see as sexual degradation, what they see as kind of social degeneracy. These are all things that are completely classically fascist. Mm-hmm. These are all things that are completely con- like contained within the far right's sense of how culture moves, how culture changes. So it's not like the, you know, swearing off masturbation is just kind of a comedy thing. Although like, you know, for, for sure, if you don't masturbate, you're obviously not immediately a fascist, but there, there, are, there are some connections here, even with these kind of lower levels of initiation with you know, traditional right-wing thinking. The Proud Boys are an interesting kind of group to consider. They're much more classically fascist than a lot of like the, the white supremacists and neo-Nazis we have today, in that they, have, they have, do have black members, they have mixed-race members, Latino members. Um, they are committed to like the political idea of the West and Western chauvinism. Um, 
and and therefore you don't necessarily have to be white to be a member of the Proud Boys. Having said that, they have many alliances with a lot of white supremacists around the country. Patriot Prayer in Portland, for example. So Patriot Prayer are... A Patriot Prayer is a, is a far-right group in Portland. Just in Portland? Just in, it's a local group. Right. And they favour... They're kind of like an almost like continuation of Tea Party politics. Mm-hmm. So they're like for free speech and they're against big government, but they've got much more racialized twist to their politics as well. Um, they uh, organise rallies in support of Donald Trump which is where a lot of like the confrontation in Portland has taken place, is that the Patriot Prayer has come to do a rally and anti-fascists have gone into Portland to stop them or come out of come out of their houses and stop them. My impression about Portland, I mean, I'm not an American, I don't know much about America and the cities, but my impression of Portland is that it's, along with, say, like Berkeley, maybe, and maybe um, like San Francisco. It's one of the places where there's a, the strongest kind of left-wing presence in the United States. Maybe I'm totally wrong about that. But also in Oregon and the Pacific Northwest, more generally, it's one of the strongest con- con- concentrations of far-right and neo-Nazi groupings. Yeah, this is due to a thing called the Northwest Territorial Imperative, which mm-hmm. is a long-term strategy of trying to secede these five states um, in the Northwest of the America, of the America? Of America. By moving as many white supremacist families into the area yeah. as possible. And, and the, uh, the FBI... Or one of the state agencies believes that thousands of families have relocated to this area. Yeah, it's a fairly long time. Decade. A few thousand families is quite. It seems like quite a lot, but in the context of like millions and millions of people who live in this area, it's really not that much. Mm-hmm. And certainly the kind of um, urban areas around there, Seattle, um, for example, are like famously quite left wing, are quite liberal mm-hmm. um, in comparison. And so the tension they're really kind of playing on is this rural, urban tension rather than necessarily anything specific as far as I can tell about the Northwest. Although the Northwest United States has fewer um, people of colour than most other places in America. Also, it goes straight back to Oregon's founding. Oregon got founded um, and after a few years, they decided to ban all black people. Anyway, Patriot Prayer attracts a lot of white supremacists and supporters and they've also been to a lot of white supremacists. So they were at Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville and... And they've, they've been the main flashpoint in Portland throughout, you know, the last couple of years. Um, Andy, Andy knows, it's, it's important to stress that Andy knows not a journalist, <laughs> even though he's been deemed a journalist by all the mainstream press and, you know, generally accepted. He, Andy knows, is a far-right provocateur who uh, is deeply Islamophobic and has placed himself increasingly on the side of the Proud Boys um, as, he's, as his career in Portland has gone on. So just uh, about the 29th, which is when the uh, concrete milkshake, so-called concrete milkshaking happened, um, he was the one who the Proud Boys leaked that they were going to have a rally. Um, he was the one who said, I've got breaking news that there's going to be a rally from the Proud Boys. Um, he's also been involved in doxing anti-fascists um, on his, like, Twitter account that's got, you know, hundreds of thousands of followers. Um, Doxing is a practice of publishing people's names and photos and often their addresses as well, which of course leads people or leaves people open to all kinds of threats, intimidation. Harassment. Harassment from the far right. Mm -hmm. Um, It's been a very effective practice for anti-fascists in America in particular. Um, It's been a kind of widespread practice of trying to dox fascists and reporting them, for example, after Charlottesville to their places of work. And lots of people who went on the Charlottesville demo on the right wing side, on the fascist side, um, had anti-fascists you know, track them down, use the footage that they had uploaded, um, report them to their employers, 
and lots of people were fired after this. So it's a tactic that has been used uh, both directions. I, I think, think it's, it's important to point out that it, there's no equivalency here. It's like absolutely yeah. doxing is good when it happens to bad people and bad when it happens to good people. Yeah, I'm, not, I'm, I'm definitely. I'm, I'm not. Do- no, 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 no. I didn't think I'm, you were. I'm just, I'm just pointing out that like it's been used on both sides. Right. And also, it's it's worth pointing out that the the threat that the far right face by being doxxed is mostly, I mean, in huge, overwhelming part, is just they'll be fired, or they'll have people in their life who are not racists, who are not um, bigots of any sort, you know, friends or family who don't know they have these kind of right wing tendencies. They'll disown them. They'll stop talking to them, etc. That's a big social threat, but it's not a threat of physical force. When left-wing people are doxxed, and particularly when anti-fascists are doxxed, there is a serious threat of violence and retaliation from the far right. Um, so and th- there's no equivalence, not only in the sense of who gets doxxed, but there's also no equivalence in the sense of what might happen to people who are doxxed. And so doxxing by fascists of the left is a really serious problem. Uh, so Andy, you know, in just, just, this, just on the 1st of May, doxxed uh, an anti-fascist activist who had been punched by a proud boy. Uh, and was on the floor. He took a photo of her while she was on the floor bleeding and uh, named her in his tweet, doxed her. Um, And this is all part of... He's one of these people who's been really complicit in this construction of a violent, terrorist, out-of-control, anti-far, all-capital letters um, that are a fundamental threat to to American democracy. That's the story. Which is... the, The construction is made. And obviously it's... This is this is not true, obviously. Uh, so there's a construction of this like uh, violent, uh, democracy-threatening organization called Antifa, or all capital letters. Um, when, if you like, just do a basic tally of the violence on either side, you know, um, there's been hundreds of people killed by far-right uh, shooters, terrorists, bombers over the past twenty years, and like none who've been killed by anti-fascists. It's, it's really simple. And to, to draw equivalency between having some milkshake thrown on you and killing a bunch of people for being for worshiping a certain religion is obviously disingenuous to the extreme and uh, a political ploy. Um, and there's no way you can describe this as any in any way as journalism. It's propaganda, pure and simple. This is Andy No spell N G O by the way. Yeah, he has a number of issues in which he's very animated about. One of them is Islam. He did his degree on political Islam. He had his first journalism controversy when he misreported what a Muslim student had said on a panel for the student newspaper and ended up getting fired by the student newspaper for that for that thing. He had a very famous um, or very controversial column in the Wall Street Journal, which was a, an attempt at kind of a piece of, what is it called, gonzo journalism, where he wrote um, about the kind of Islamic terror uh, facing London. And kind of construe council organised, uh, council rules about drinking in public places for Islamic Sharia rules about, you know, prohib- prohibition on alcohol, because clearly it not, this is not true. <laughs> and there was a, there was a um, as part of the backstory to that, he related a time that he'd been to London, I think as a teenager, as a 13-year-old, and he'd seen a woman dressed... Um, in a niqab, and he was said he was frozen with terror, frozen with terror at the sight of this this woman. Um, so clearly, there's a, like an, a deep, deep, deep strain of Islamophobia throughout all of his writing. And the other one is a, a, a relentless campaigning against Antifa, as he as he terms it. Um, he is based in Portland, 
And so he's covered a lot of the anti-fascist confrontations that have happened between Proud Boys and Patriot Prayer and other anti-fascist groups. Um, and it's become increasingly more and more clear as he's done this reporting and as he's done this propaganda um, of where his sympathies lie. He has openly said that the Proud Boys are not a fascist organisation. Um, he uh, regularly doxes anti-fascists. Uh, there's, a, there's a quite chilling tweet um, from May Day this year of a anti-fascist picture of an anti-fascist woman, uh, anti-fascist person who'd been hit over the head and was on the floor and he doxes her, says her name to his hundreds of thousands of followers. Obviously this is, you know, incredibly violent act, a violent thing to do to somebody. Andy Nowers came to the um, June 29th Proud Boys demonstration as he usually does with his camera and the way the incident was constructed, he is a journalist, he gets mobbed by anti-fascists, he gets punched, he has a milkshake thrown over him, vegan milkshake thrown over him, and uh, he has to go to hospital with a brain bleed, hemorrhage has been held overnight. He had a crowdfunder set up by another right-wing personality called Michelle Malkin, which had raised you know, over $300,000, probably more by now, um, to help him with his healing, even though he's like, He's been tweeting the whole, his whole process. Um, the, the the thing about it is that it's a clear example of this example of um, uh, right-wing disinformation as a tactic that we haven't really grappled with. Um, these these like video clips, we get shown of context. We don't see what happens before. We don't see what happens after. Uh, along with like willful, uh, gleeful rumour spreading and uh, repetition of speculation of the fact, which we as, as anti-fascists and on the left haven't been able to, to deal with. And the, obviously the answer to these kind, of, these kind of disinformation campaigns is not that we need to get even more uh, false about what we say, but we do need to work out how to respond to, this kind of, to, to these kind of tactics. So the, the, the main rumour that, that went around on the day was that uh, in the milkshakes there had been placed uh, quick drying cement, which would give people caustic burns if thrown over them. This came from a report from the Portland uh, Police Department uh, who said they'd, ha they'd had it reported, one of their lieutenants had seen the, the milkshake mixture that looked to him like cement. They'd had a recipe sent to them, which was, I mean, obviously shouldn't have been taken seriously because it was this like recipe for milkshakes which had a quick drying cement in it. Clearly wasn't meant to be, well, it probably was meant to be taken seriously, but it clearly wasn't serious. Um, and as soon as the police tweeted this, uh, it was jumped upon by a bunch of far-right conspiracy theorists um, and circulated from there. And you, you see this kind of filtering effect throughout kind of social media, throughout Twitter, where it, this crazy claim is picked up and spoken as true by the, the fringiest of the fringes. And then as it spreads out, it's slowly picked up by more and more like legitimate right-wing and conservative thinkers. Um websites like Red State or Human Events, um, and eventually infects the whole, the kind of whole media thing as this kind of, this kind of story, in inverted commas, takes a life of its own. And so you have Lizzie Dearden in The Independent, who uh, it's not, wasn't in the US, wasn't there on the day, writing a story about how anti-fascists were using quick-drying cement in their milkshakes, and was in no way critical of that, at least at first. Um, you have the usual suspects of Fox News, which initially had this headline of quick drying cement in milkshakes before it got taken off again. 
Um, and I, I was arguing with some of these people on the podcast Twitter account. Um, it's over, at 12 rules for what? Right. On Twitter. Um, the other day, and it's genuinely was quite exhausting and disheartening experience because you just have these bunch of random Twitter egg accounts, people with tens of followers, 100, 100 followers or whatever, repeating this as fact. When you ask for evidence, they just link to the same old tweets that they saw it. And it's, it's, really, it's really difficult to be able to uh, think about how we convince someone who's already taking a very unreasonable position in a lot of things that this particular unreasonable position is not true. Especially when it's been taken up by, by people, you know, people like Jake Tapper, for, who's a big guy on CNN. There's nothing you can do about it then. Jake Tapper has like a million followers on Twitter. You can't, there's no way you can refute that to be effective in any way. This whole milkshaking thing, it's kind of the natural, the whole cement milkshake thing is the kind of natural conclusion of what was being talked about when the first milkshake wave of a few months ago happened during the Euros, um, where we, you had people like Sam Harris, you had people like Nigel Farage saying, first of all, this is assault, very serious offence. Uh, second of all, it's a practice uh, for more serious things to come. Mm. Um, what if there's acid in here? What if there's... They didn't say cement at the time, but if they thought about it, they would have done. And what we're seeing now, which is really concerning, is a bunch of far-right people in Portland around saying milkshaking could be having acid in it, cement in it, Therefore, we should have our guns. We should protect ourselves against milkshakes by using force in return. Um, and and so what we've seen now is this incident has acted as a justification for a bunch of people to uh, be more likely to use their, to shoot people for throwing a milkshake up at someone else. It's also, um, it justifies what kind of gets out of the bind that we, when we first talked about milkshaking um, a while ago, we said there was this kind of bind between the two positions. On the one hand, you don't want to look weak, and therefore you don't want to kind of not respond or kind of laugh it off. On the other hand, you don't want to look like you're overreacting. So you um, you don't want to kind of pursue someone who's got a milkshake, um, who's thrown a milkshake over you and you know, hit them or call for their deaths or you know, whatever you might do. Um, so you don't want to overact, but also you can't not react. And so it puts you into this really good, kind of interesting bind when you get a milkshake thrown on you. And what this wet cement thing, or this, what this quick-drying cement conspiracy theory does, is solve that bind. So it allows you to overreact and be justified in your overreaction. Let me play the part of a kind of a uh, naive liberal momentarily. Nothing new. Nothing new at all. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm okay with violence. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm okay with anti-fascist violence. That's good. As long as there is some direct, real fascist threat to people. I'm not okay with anti-fascist violence when people are just uh, designating whoever they want to as fascists. They're just saying, this person is a Nazi, therefore we can beat them up. I'm not okay with that at all. Um, but I think there's a legitimate form of community defence here. In Andy No's case, there was absolutely no reason why we should have been, or anti-fascists, should have been scared of him to the extent that they would then attack him. Posting someone's pictures... Uh, although it's you know irritating and potentially damaging, definitely isn't physical confrontation. It isn't physical violence. So why should I uh, accept that sometimes people who have done doxing, for example, are legitimate targets for anti-fascist violence? What would be what could be the direct consequence of of this? What happened to Andy Nutt? Uh Well, we, for one thing, we don't know yet. He might double down. Uh, he might 
become get pushed even more to the to the, to the right wing. He might um, become a more open, committed fascist character, um, or he might go the path of Richard Spencer, who got punched in the face at the J Twenty demonstrations, humiliated around the world, and has essentially dropped off dropped off the face of the earth for a year and a half or whatever, because um, anti-fascist violence was so effective in shutting down his um, his speeches in universities and his organising that he declared that Antifa had won against him. Um, now, Andy, no. Um, I think doxing constitutes an act of violence against another person. And I think that uh, actually to dox someone, to their family, friends, to other to fascists who have a propensity towards violence is much worse than having a milkshake thrown on you. It goes to a certain kind of uh, liberal notion of of speech and violence that really does need to be challenged. Like, some speech is not okay. Some speech is not acceptable. Docs and anti-fascists, people who are out to fight, you know, really violent, you know, supremacists in the Proud Boys Patriot Prayer, it's not okay. It shouldn't be okay. It's acceptable to wider society, um, and whatever whatever those supporters, um, which constitutes a large amount of society, it, it shouldn't it shouldn't particularly matter. Um, the violence thing is the classic liberal thing of who gets to do violence, who doesn't get to do violence, and and for what reason? Like liberals are really happy, are really are fine with prisons and police. It's a really fundamentally basic point. Of, um, they're happy with borders, and but when it, whenever someone takes on t- does an act of violence outside that um, that rubric, it is completely verboten. So as anti-fascists, how do we respond to these kind of uh, disinformation kind of campaigns, constant tactics, the posting wars of online? Um, I mean, in some respects, the answer is to like post harder than they can. Um, a lot of ground is often ceded. Uh, to these platforms, YouTube is the prime example we will talk about in the upcoming episode. Um, but also things like Twitter, like people are super, people are only just starting to put out their own version of what happened and really try and wrestle with narratives. You need to be challenging what these people put out and it's exhausting work, um, but it is also necessary. If we if we had allowed the, the cement story to uh, become cemented in people's minds then that's a suddenly like Antifa really is a terrorist domestic terrorist organisation out to seriously wound pe- wound innocent journalists and uh, and, and therefore what, w- what will be the state's response to those anti-fascist groups you do need to be uh, constantly combating challenging contesting these what, what these things that people say because Ultimately, the state is quite quite willing to include anti-fascism in its list of banned groups or of police it much more harshly. Um, we could have an anti-fascist scare, much like there was a green scare in America. Um, a lot of people went to jail for very minor things and for a long time. And that would be bad if a bunch of anti-fascist activists got sent to jail for a long time because it would give fascists a more freer reign to organise and grow, grow stronger. Um and so it goes back to this weird, like, um, I guess it goes back to this weird kind of ambiguity with how the state functions in, like, the mind of a militant anti-fascist organisation. Because you ostensibly want to be independent, separate, 
I think that's an important part of your politics to not work with the police. And at the same time, you do need to engage in certain ways, even if it's non-directly, because if you suddenly get um, prescribed, if you suddenly get banned, um, then you're you're in a bit of a you're in a bit of a pickle, <laughs> to say the least. And and so there, there there is this speaks to also speaks to like a role of like a broad movement. We need people like Mark Bray to be making these arguments very publicly, even if he he is a bit unsure about having that role thrust upon him. Um, and we need uh, other groups to do um, uh, more street-based direct action work um, that isn't, that they're not going to be trumpeted for and people aren't going to find out about, but it's equally important. Um, the best way to prevent the spread of disinformation is to go to patreon.com slash 12 rules for what and give us $2 a month. And we've got some new tiers now. We've yeah. got Comrade, Bigger Comrade. And Huge Comrade. Huge Comrade. And eventually I'll do a $40 and it'll be... Bloody hell. Mega Comrade. Galaxy Comrade. Galaxy. <laughs> I don't know. 12 rules. <laughs> <laughs>